0: I'm pleased to have Ben Van Rue on the podcast. He's filled many shoes from software engineering to supply chain policy analysis, tech companies, and he's recently took a new role as CEO and co-founder of an AI startup called Yurtz. Ben wrote a three-part series on the Small Business Innovation Research and Technology Transition Programs, SIBER STTR, or Sitter, and that's what we're here to talk about today. Ben, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk.
1: Thanks for having me,
0: Eric. So, yeah, let's dive right into it. We actually talked about a year ago last summer about this subject, and now you're actually pretty involved and active in the cyber discourse and reauthorization. What's that story? Can you just catch us up?
1: Yeah, I think it's a comedy of errors. I was working with a venture capital fund last year in the summer in some of their portfolio companies, trying to help them get introduced to different programs in the federal government. And I have some experience in that, and we can talk a little bit about it later. But specifically with the SBIR program, I wanted to understand who is winning these awards and why and get a little bit of the inner workings of it. And what's intriguing about it is the data is readily available for anyone to use. And I'm an analyst by training. And so I I just dove into it. And you and I had a conversation. I talked to a bunch of stakeholders and I learned a little bit about where the program went. And then I just, I used that information for some of the companies, but I sat on it overall. I wrote a half, wrote up a blog and life happens. I had a second child and yeah, everyone knows that's busy. I think sometime in the early spring, I decided I'm just going to get, write this thing out. And, and then I prepared what I thought was an interesting perspective, really from the stakeholders that I was trying to write to were other tech companies, venture capitalists, and a little bit to the DoD of just, okay, here's how a company might think about this entire program. And that was the genesis of the first article that I wrote.
0: And sometimes these things take a life of their own, don't they? So can you give us a lowdown on who reacted to it and uh, what happened next?
1: Yeah, so that was interesting. Again, for all intents and purposes, it's like a blog and I have at least six followers in my life on Twitter. So I wasn't expecting a lot. If you have read it or haven't read it, I've got some pretty dope memes in there. It took about five days before congressional staffers called me which I thought was like a, wow, this thing has moved a little bit faster through my network and the Department of Events. I talked with folks in Congress, people from at AFWorks, uh, NavalX, You can tell, DIU, a number of different companies reached out to me to share their experiences, which was pretty cool. You know, I, I think at least I got the messaging out for at least a, a perspective of how a founder slash VC would think about this. And then people gave me other information and I started to dig a bit deeper. And then that's when it really became a series in and out of itself.
0: And so what did you actually start finding in the data itself?
1: Yeah. So at the highest level, what I observed was that, and you can read about this later, the majority of SBIR dollars. And again, I focused almost all of my efforts in the beginning on DOD SBIR dollars. STTR is a bit of a different beast. And then there are a number of other agencies that participate in the SBIR program. But for the most part, like 46% of the dollars are coming from DOD. And so that was my primary focus. And what I found is that, again, there, there are a handful of companies that were really being rewarded or awarded most of the money. I was trying to figure out why and if that was a bad thing. And just in the beginning, it was just like, this is what's happening. And so what's intriguing about that is that if you look at it, there's eight companies that have received 10% of the, all the total awards. And I'm looking in the most. I was looking at the most recent years, about 2016 through 2022. I, li- I did a deeper dive later. If you think about, okay, that's something. You know, about one percent of the overall companies have about 25 percent of the awards. So really, you can start to see that a, only a select few of companies were getting award after award. And so this starts to beg lots of different questions: Is this good? Is this bad? How is it happening? And why? And, and so that was like high level view.
0: And then you drew like a nice DoD Sibber power curve, which I think it just showed, right, that a, a large fraction of the, the warts go to the small few. And then you have a large tail of companies that are getting like just small little pennies in terms of percentage of the total amount. So there's a lot of interest in the Sibber accounts. But just like in the broader, I think, DOD industrial-based ecosystem, you probably see that same power curve. So the cyber power curve probably looks something similar to the power curve of prime contracts in the larger industry. What did you take away from that? Is that similar to other industries or sectors, or is this kind of unique? Yeah, I think it's... This happens in in
1: other industries and verticals, but what's unique here, again, it's like it starts to come back to the fundamental questions that I think we should be asking with SBIRs. What's the purpose? And so when people talk about stimulating the industrial base and growing new businesses to be great defense companies of the future, what this demonstrates is that's not happening. It shows that, okay, there are hundreds and thousands of companies that have gotten some money a little bit of money but for the most part it's only going to a select few and again what i was trying to accomplish is what is the case and then from a company standpoint the picture that i was trying to show is if you are an emerging tech company should you even be going after this money and what's the likelihood of you winning it all together and what i wanted to try to understand is if we assume that a good majority of the funds are going to be going to a select few companies How much is left for everyone else? And who else
0: is winning? And what is the like the probability of winning or like the P win rate for these companies? You probably don't have the data on it, but I'm sure like the big guys who do this over and over again must have a much higher like win rate on these things. But for like, I guess a non-traditional who's coming at it their first time, do you have a sense of what's their probability of actually winning if they do submit? Yeah, I
1: think the short answer is no, but
0: I have some intuitions. What
1: would be very intriguing is if the We really had good insights into the number of applications that came into SBIRs. That's a big missing piece. But we do have the DoD, we have the winners. And then we also know is that there's been a kind of a cottage industry that I read about. For the most part, there's kind of a cottage industry that has existed, but has grown over the last few years of ex-DoD procurement people that understand the systems, well, they understand how SBIRs work. And they can for fee and it's there's ways that they monetize help companies win. And so what I was trying to understand was okay, so if you are one of the companies that takes a lot of these DOD sivers out of the out and you're awarded each year, and or if you are one of the companies that has hired contractors, like what's left? What's that pop up like? And so in the analysis, what I've talked to a number of people. I've talked to people at these companies. I found that, look, you could expect that about 20 to 30% of the awards might actually be affiliated with a third party service. And so, as a company, you're saying, okay, if something like 30 to 50% of the awards are going to go to one of these end companies that wins every time, and then 20 to 30% of the awards are going to be going to Companies that have, that are that you have to pay to play, then you know what you're looking at is if you're just Joe company off the street. Even if you have some cool tech, your likelihood of winning one of these awards is probably pretty
0: small. What are like the, the costs or fee structures of these third party consultants who will come out and help? Do you it, kind of what's ranges, the relative size of I mean, that? So
1: it ranges per group, but. Rough proxies, I would say you're looking at three to six thousand dollars a month. And then they have different fee structures where they can take chunks of equity of your company or they get chunks of the award. And that can look like something between five and fifteen percent of the total award. And again, this is I'm not knocking these guys. This is a service that's being provided in part because of imperfections in the overall system. These are grant dollars. These are, I think it's a little bit different than. Programmatic dollars, it's non-dilutive grants, and so it's, it's like it's a thing. It's just a, it's a cost that a company that wants to engage with the DoD and hasn't before has to consider. And so overall, what I was trying to paint was a broader picture of again, what are the likelihood of you engaging and winning, and then what are the economics around that. The last kind of piece is given the way the overall broad structure exists, not a lot of these winners from phase one and phase two are turning them into phase three successes, and that's just that is just a honest to God truth. There are other structural reasons for that we can go to later, but you have to, as a company, is this how I should spend my time and resources?
0: And one of the aspects that seems to be hard there, you said like the SIBR grants. I'm not really sure like how many are actually grants. It feels like at least in the department of defense, most of them are just like actual contracts. You have to be like, this is what I'm specified I'm going to do. And this is the cost to go do it. And that's why it's going to look like this. Do you think that has an aspect of it? One of your recommendations was actually very interesting to me, where you talked about this difference between point solution solicitations, and then like cross service thematic streams. Mm -hmm. So having a little bit broader solicitation or things that you're trying to go for, as opposed to specify exactly what you're going to do, or something like that. What were you recommending there? And what have you? Yeah, so
1: again, this is one of the things I didn't want to do was to wade into like PPPE and value of Death stuff in this first approach. Because I, I think for a company that doesn't understand the DoD, like they're going to look at that and their eyes roll back. Like they have no concept, they have no reference point of where to even start. But without trying to dictate how we do longer term planning and policy, because that's obviously wrong and dumb of me. Do you think that something that's really missing that would be very intriguing for the DoD is to put out thematic, look, we're going to invest in counter UASs of roughly about this size over the next few years. We're not totally committing exactly which dollar and that comes out of. And again, I'm sure people's heads are exploding somewhere around the world of color of money and legal considerations. But if you're a company, what you want to fundamentally know is if I invest my time and energy in working with the government, is there really money that's sitting somewhere that my company, my services, my products can go after, like that type of communication doesn't exist. And so what you see instead is open topics aside is like, okay, it's a point solution. I log into DoD's cyber site, Here are all the new topics, I'm an AI company right now. This is not really that close to the AI that I'm doing, I'll come back next year. And I think that's, it happens in other places too. And you look at DIU, different organization, great. But it feels, I tell people, it feels like it's Easter. Like you hope you find the Easter egg and you can participate. Otherwise, you wait. And I think that's where if you're doing cutting edge technology that you think is probably important to the government, and yet these are your only ways to potentially engage with them, it's just clunky. And so you have to find other venues. And so I, I would be really intrigued to see, and you look at it now, we put a pause on the Sibbers for... Or 22.3, I would be interested in seeing. Maybe they're going to come out with some more thematic ideas to say, look, we're focusing on open topics of AI in X. We're focusing on drones in Y. And maybe offer a little bit more flexibility for people to participate. That would be really intriguing. All legal and I mean, color of money stuff aside, I'm just speaking as a lay founder slash VC slash policy person. Like, I, that's it.
0: How would that look different in your mind than, I guess, AffWorks, who has their open topics, which is just like, some of them are commercial solutions openings, kinds of like, long that these solicitations can stay open, be very broad, take white papers at any kind of time. Usually they give you specified times, but is there a way that you're in your mind that this might look different than that? Or do you think Afworks is showing the way with that strategy? Or should they be more constrained? Like you actually say, here's the thematic stream. It's going to be like counter UAS, blah, 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 like each of these little subtopics, but still broad. I
1: think that's a great question. So I think they're really onto something there. I had written the first article and more recently a GAO report talked about the AppWorks Open Topics, and it's not necessarily broadly loved by everyone in DOD and Congress, but I think, again, from my perspective, if you're trying to inject new blood and you don't necessarily believe that the DOD has all the requirements or knowledge beforehand of what's out there, Open Topics is a Potentially really interesting venue where you know, from my perspective, where it might fall short over the next N years, and there I think there's ways that they're bridging this, is this broader idea of is it connected to a PEO? And how do you get longer funding streams tied to thematic areas of SIBRS? So, like that would be intriguing to me. Look, if it's counter UAS. And we know that there's, there is going to be money that is attached to BEO the and there is a really formalized funnel. I think there's all sorts of ways to plug in funding streams in between. And I think that's maybe the answer to answer your question of where I think it, it maybe differs today from Open Topics is I don't know how an Open Topic is really tied to, let's say, what might be a multi-year X hundred million dollar commitment to X. Does that make sense?
0: You talked a little bit about this in your blog post as well, because you said you have Sibber, can it be tied to more program of record E type things? One of your recommendations in there was also, hey, maybe we get rid of some of these smaller phase ones. Is it your kind of contention that, well, if you have a thousand or several thousand phase ones, not all of these are probably investments that will make it across this valley of death. We should probably narrow it down to those that have the capabilities and competence and potential that these might be our winners. So we're going to focus more money on these guys. So get rid of some of the smaller awards, concentrate on some of these bigger awards. What are some of the pushbacks to that? Yeah. So
1: I, I think the idea of a phase one is thoughtful. It gives companies a little bit of money, a little time to go and do BD. I think in reality, there's some at least observed and then broader implications I've heard about. If you look at the data itself there are companies that are just really good at producing sbir applications they've hired capture teams they have like whole grant writing arms and again it's not just super mills when you talk about them but it's, it's people that are just really focusing on turning these out now what do you get you get two things one you get like a clog of just a deluge of, of applications that reviewers have to see and so it's like a dirty discussion that no one really wants to talk about, but then everyone will say it behind closed doors. Is, yeah, people don't actually have a lot of time to look at a lot of phase one applications because there's just so many of them. And so I think that creates one issue because I think it might create some dilution of focus when people are-
0: I think the offices, by the way, they. if you're going to take on CIBER, your staff is dependent on your obligations, but the CIBER obligations that you're funding doesn't contribute to your staff or something like that. So it's it's seen as a little bit of a burden. And then if you have all these applications, who are you matrixing from other organizations or where to get that support on the evaluation? Yeah, so then I
1: just hear you hear the dirty rumors of just like lots of people are brought in to really quickly review them. And that seems something that could be structurally addressed. I think the other thing that I see is sometimes you just see abuse of companies that do win lots of them. And there's actually overlap. And I won't name the name, but there was an example of a, in for Space Force, a company that recently won like 13 phased ones that were a higher price, and they got between something like two and three million dollars to basically talk to the same four or five officers. And it's like, okay, I get it. They didn't do anything wrong, but that's that's one example. You see the really big zipper mills. They just they get so many of them. It's like, what's what are we really trying to accomplish? And then the final thing is just some agencies spend more money or offer more money than $50,000, $50,000 isn't that much money to anyone. And so there's part of it that are just, I would just consider cutting it out and going to larger awards and award more people, more meaningful amounts. That's why I would consider, at least this is a fairly reasonable view on why I would consider killing it or being really mindful on what the purpose of phase one is moving forward.
0: What if you had a phase one that. Like the 50,000 was really like, you do the phase one, it's like very lightweight, Um, but then the phase one cash is actually there for you to actually bid on phase two or something like that. So you're actually covering some of their upfront expenses because, you know, Oren Hoffman here, he had a, I think it was about a year ago now, he had a, also a post on some of the cyber stuff and he said the success rate was 20% was his estimate of a submission and it takes three man months, let's just say two man months of time to put together a cyber proposal. And so when I look at that, I'm just like, okay, if I put that together, if I have five companies on any given cyber proposal, and I price them out at two man months each, and a man hour is just $100 an hour, let's call it like the total cost of input on the proposals just on the industry side not on the government side is over 160,000 right. and these cyber awards aren't really that big. Right. So I think you're trying to say let's cut out some of that small stuff and some of that churn cuz I'm sure like the proposal process is relatively large compared to the winnings in phase yeah. 1. But could you actually use some of that phase 1? It's always nice I think in my mind cuz it's like for the big companies or maybe these cyber mills they have a bunch of existing kind of government contracts and portfolio stuff. So they can expense that right. or it's just like one more thing where it's like a new company. It's here's a big investment upfront for you to even play. So yeah. Could you level the playing field in that yeah, way? I
1: think it's a fair argument. You know, what I don't know though is with the
0: hit rates of phase ones to phase
1: two, if sometimes you're sending false signals to these, to smaller companies that are starting to, perp, to, to engage. And then again, your best likelihood of winning is to engage a third party, third party service. And so, Maybe it helps cover their costs a bit for sure, but yeah, I think it's fair to contemplate what that could be, what we could do with that money in, is that a better use of money just to award more people with phase twos or larger phase twos? And these are trade-offs. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think the, the, the cost of producing applications for large companies is for the, that are the silver mills. It's very low because they just have, they have, this is in some ways, some of their biggest innovation is to produce grants grant proposals at a lower cost and then stay connected in the networks and do what they do to get it done. It's not to say that they aren't producing innovative technology, but you really do have to look and see some of the other factors that and performance metrics that say not all these really big mills are really doing the best by way of the warfighter. And so, yeah, I think changing the phase one is one way to think
0: about it. I think one of the issues here that kind of frames the whole thing is just people come to sibber with very different perspectives of what it means and what it's for and what are the purposes of it. So you've talked one of in one of your recommendations was deciding what is Cibber about and have a consistent message. What do you mean? What was mm-hmm. what's the confusion going on?
1: Yeah, and I think if anything that stayed even consistent throughout my experience in this whole process is that everybody thinks it means something different. And that's Maybe a good thing. It's maybe a little bit of a evolutionary thing. It's maybe a bad thing. Some people think CIBR is fundamental research. Basically, you're augmenting the national labs. Some people think the goal of CIBR is to protect the American manufacturing base or the defense manufacturing base. Some people think it's look ways to see early technologies. Some people really think it's about transitioning dual-use technologies. And then some people think like, hey, this is discretionary funds that like the MAGCOMs are going to use. And when I say some people, I'm talking about, you can see people in the same organization in the DOD have very different views. Like I was sitting in a room with congressional staffers and liaisons on this that have been around working on this for a while. And they have very different points of what success is and what the money is supposed to be for. And, and then frankly, other agencies think about it differently. The way NIH thinks and NSF, like drastically different than what the DOD looks at and the way that they award people is different too. So I think part of the problem is that, or opportunity is that it's everything to everyone and it's nothing to, to everyone at the same time. But the, again, from a company perspective, what I'm concerned about was if we're going to market this as a way for dual use technologies to jump over the line, it really may not be that, or it's certainly not sure that's what it's being used for. And that much money is being allocated to that specific need. but. The DoD could say to Congress, Hey, we need more money for innovation. And Congress might say, Hey, you actually, you have the zipper thing. Why aren't you using that? And it may not be cranking out the next innovative drone or counter drone or AI system or whatever. And so that's where I think a lot of the, I don't know, if you go to LinkedIn and you look at some of the comments, there's a lot of debate of what this is used for, what it's not used for. People get really passionate about it. But if you step back and you look at how people are being used, it's like, look, That's why everyone's confused. And I think if SBI or SBA say, look, we want it to be everything to everyone, then say that, but then also market, hey, there's actually going to be a pretty small slice that will probably really be used for dual use technology transfer. I think that would be a little bit fair. But that overall experience of everyone has a different viewpoint on what it should be used for guided how I tried to frame different aspects of the subsequent articles.
0: Yeah, you brought up the uh, GAO report which you know looked at how the Air Force used their cyber funding in a different way. GAO was in somewhat of a glowing review to a degree because they're like, "Hey, they said they wanted to bring in non-traditionals and they did actually bring in more non-traditionals compared to the conventional cyber awards and they actually were able to drive down procurement and administrative lead time as well." So, is this Is some of the confusion just like different offices for marketing it in different ways? Like AFWorks here just, hey, we got all this. Can we just put it in one place and leverage it for dual use? It it doesn't seem like other people were saying that that like Afworks just decided in the Air Force, hey, this would be a good idea. And they were like the loudest about it. And they got a lot of traction for it in terms of LinkedIn. And so maybe it made it seem like that was more than what it was relative to the other agencies. Do you think that was something going on with Afworks that led to the confusion, but it also seems like for Afworks, with their stratify and everything else, they're at least trying to follow through on at least your vision of the dual use, or is that not true?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think definitely not only are the agencies different, but the services behave differently. And you can see in the data how the different services will either be bringing on lots of new companies or not with these funds. And so works and the Air Force is the most progressive in terms of trying to use the money for different ways and bringing new technologies and bringing in new vendors. And again, I think that there can be, I personally believe that is a very good thing. I don't I don't see lots of other meaningful paths for new companies to start to work with the DOD early. I mean, even if you look at DIU, that's a later stage engagement. They're looking more at a series B, series C company that's already got Fair amount of commercialization in the other markets. Intel is varies in between, but it's also something similar. And again, those are only gonna take in the case of DIU, it's only if someone has a specific need. In the case of InkyTel, they're a little more thematic, but they're not making thousands of investments right now. So I think my personal belief is that's the way that Afworks is trying to address open topics is thoughtful. And I think that is a path that will lead to. Both new technologies coming in, new founders coming in, a, a more diversified group of founders coming in. Um, but there are also some issues with that. Again, I brought up the PEO issues, like how is it tied to long-term funds? That's interesting. I'll also say that I think a challenge is companies that are very cash strapped and don't know the DoD will still be out of luck because they can't necessarily pay for or will can't necessarily make the investments in consultants. And so, there are still some barriers, I think, for real kind of equity across those application process. But I think it's, I think it is progress.
0: You had an interesting idea. There's this new, of course, agile procurement fund that is used for getting companies across this quote unquote, valley of death and like into operational stuff. So it's actually procurement money. It was a hundred million dollars. They announced it recently to 10 companies. So $10 million per company. And one of the parts of it was, it had to go to companies less than $500 million of cumulative defense contracts. You recommended in one of, and I think it was your third blog post, that a program like this should just be funded through the CIBR withholds or institutionalized rather than having these random pots on the side that Congress, by the way, is also skeptical of. Could you like institutionalize it into CIBR itself? And I think that gets back to some of our discussion on Get rid of phase ones and use those that cyber money more strategically. What's your kind of? Is there anything you like to add to that? Yeah,
1: I think that's fair. When I looked at Atfit, it's there were there are a couple of companies that I know that are doing some really interesting things that were selected. And here's kind of bring it up in, in the third article. Here's a shining program that's super exciting, and let's market it. And that's cool. And yet I called it the let them eat cake moment, because you. on the other hand, we're trying to do this reauthorization of the SBIR program. And I don't believe any changes are going to go through. I actually think this thing is going to go into continuing resolution. I think it's going to get punted into the next Congress. And I think that's, so where I'm tying these two together is we're talking about how this program is a really good way to bridge the value. But we have this program where there's a billion to a billion three each year that for the most part, you could fund two to three to four full at-fit programs. That's a couple hundred million dollars every year if you wanted to just by adding some reforms on 30 to 50 companies that are abusing the system now. That is to say, it's you have the money. You don't have to do it as a one-off. You just have to think about reforming what you're doing today. And what I like about the program is I think it actually shows that they're motivated in finding better transition paths for companies and yet we still are the largest amount of money that's normally dedicated for that could be dedicated for something like that is not really being touched and so that that's where i think that there's a lot of politicking that's happening right now there's a lot of lobbying there are key constituents that do not want to see anything changed and i was just trying to bring up you know why this is a is an opportunity to move forward
0: maybe let me um uh... I guess rephrase what I think some of your, your blog post was trying to say and put it together for our audience. And then I want you to comment on it. So you were saying, hey, look, there's all these companies that are going back to the Sipper trough and getting millions of dollars from Sibir over their lifetime, tens of millions of dollars in, in many respects. That could be like hundreds, hundreds of millions. Of yeah, dollars. and significant portion of their overall company revenues, or at least their total awards from the government. And so you're saying, look, you have all these companies, they don't seem to be like transitioning something. They don't seem to be wanting to grow or scale or transform the department in some way with these technologies. So if we just, instead of giving these dollars back to these cyber mills, some of which are very high dollar public companies as well, there's already, the money's already there. We just need to reallocate it in a strategic and different way. So if please just go off on that, but also just describe what are super Sib- Mills and what'd you find about some of these companies?
1: Yeah. So when I wrote the first article, I tried to stay away from it a little bit. I was identifying that a small number of companies would take a large money, amount of the money only with the intention of saying, look, there's actually not a lot of money to go after if you're a new entrant or you just people have the right context. But what I did is I decided to spend more time really trying to understand these companies because it's... If these companies are doing a great job by way of the DoD, then it's really hard for me to say, no, actually, you should go fund this ill-fangled startup in Silicon Valley. That's two dudes in an AWS account. So what I did, though, is I was trying to look at how do you how would you quantify? How would you define what a mill is? And people, there's different stuff written on that. But what I was really trying to get at is how sustainable are these corporations with the DoD without cyber money? And if you kind of look at the blog post, there are companies that have made hundreds of millions of dollars and have received hundreds of millions of dollars in awards from the DoD. And it represents, it can be 30, 50, 80% of their overall DoD total like pool. So what that means is they're super dependent on the DoD. And what it also means is that they're not necessarily commercializing any of this technology at scale. So a lot of this argument is really, what are we giving the warfighter each year with these dollars? And, and I get really angry that no one's you know, not really angry, but I get upset that people aren't talking a lot about that. That should be the guiding force, I think, personally, of all of these different topics. Like, What are we really doing for the DoD? And company after company, you can see when companies are getting 50, 100, 200 million in cyber dollars, they're not actually producing commercializable technologies. And this is something that's debated, but you can see there are some companies that are, but there are a bunch that aren't. And then there are other nuances that I found. It's There's a, there's a company that's still competing for SBIR dollars, and they've had a, a billion dollars in DOD contracts. And you kind of think, okay, maybe those guys should just, like, you've won, you've done a good job, guys. Let's bring in the next batch of small companies. The other thing that I highlight was there's a company, Luna, Tech, Luna Incorporated, Luna Technologies Incorporated, something like that. It's a public company. It's traded on the NASDAQ, and they're highly dependent on SBIRs. And that's thank God that they did not give, that they don't give a dividend to me. That just seems this is non-dilutive grant dollars for research for different topics. It's it is not a contract. It's not necessarily binding in the same way as a procurement order. And yet here's a public company that's bidding and winning. And is that right? And so the second article was really trying to understand how do you even think about dependence on the DoD. Are these companies being successful in commercializing their companies year after year? How much are they really taking? Some of this stuff is going to be, again, opportunity cost. What are we not investing in? Who are we not investing in? What technology is not being fielded? And I think that was some of the motivation of really looking at those. And then I did explore coming up with policies. What would be policies that maybe would work for everyone? And that's where I push some ideas there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. why don't you just tell us what some of those recommendations are? Because you had a nice little chart about what's the current state and what might make sense in a future state in terms of if you've IPOed, you're on the you're on the stock market. Maybe you shouldn't be able to get silver dollars. What are some of the other things that you recommended in that lane?
1: Yeah. And- Again, I'm not associated with any policy arm or affiliate in any Congress. And actually like people would send me emails and say, oh, you're just working for such and such and you're a DoD plant or whatever. No one's paying me at all for any of this. But the policies that I thought, I was trying to say, okay, how can we think about ways to encourage new growth, to free up certain amount of capital for new entrants to come in? One thing that I pushed is an 842, where the idea was eight phase ones per year per company, four phase twos per year per company. And then I called it phase three, but really I was talking about as TACFIs, that's a cap. And the basic idea was if every company was capped at that annually, you can compete year in, year out. That's actually like, I would argue, and I've worked at companies where we've won awards, that's actually a fair amount of work right there. For you to be successful and make products that will ultimately be commercializable for the DOD, that's a pretty good cap. And then what I found is that would free up basically about $200 million a year for other companies to participate or the money to be used, again, for something like GapFit, And so like that only, we're talking about a few dozen of companies that would, that, that would change their
0: business model. How many phase twos are they getting in one year? One of the biggest guys, like they're getting 30 or something. How much is that?
1: Yeah, there can be, there are some that are getting 30 to 50 a year.
0: So that's where if you just made that cap, because that cap seems that's a pretty high bar, eight phase one. So we're talking several hundred thousand dollars Four phase two. So that's probably three to four million dollars or maybe more. And then two phase 2.5s or whatever, stratify, tactify. So that could be in the tens Mm -hmm. of millions. I would, I don't think anybody's going to win two phase 2.5s or Stratfies in a year, but still that's a reasonable limit there. Did people say, oh, you're being political or this must mean that you're Like this?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. They. I've been told that if we moved, so this this is something that you. I would encourage everyone that's in participating in this. The words "small business" are thrown around like you're going to crush small business. The reality is, we're talking about a handful or a couple handfuls of businesses. Small business would greatly benefit for some of these changes. A handful of businesses may have to change how they operate. And very recently was told, if we change benchmarks, if we change caps, these companies could not do that over a span of three to five years. That's my point. If you can't change and commercialize in other ways over a three to five year span and you are so addicted to the sugar that is SBIR dollars, that's what we, that's where we really have a problem, and that's what we should really focus on correcting. I get the argument that says, hey, these people have been operating, participating in the world and helping the DoD, and now you're penalizing them. Sure-ish. There's been a lot of, there's, that's a lot of free cheese for a long time. There, there's a great example that I call out. Physical Optics was a company that's got something like $600 million in total funding from the DOD through SBIR grants, and they sold for $310 million. There could be reasons there. They're not the only ones. I called out Luna Labs and they said, they've recently sold off their, or Luna, they sold off their labs division for 20 some million dollars to a company. $20 million is about their annual take in SBIR. I'm just showing that this is just the data that's saying, hey, if they sold for a billion dollars, okay, clearly they were doing some things really well, but they're not. So that's why I think it's at least fair to question and talk about reform. But it gets to be a pretty hot topic, especially within certain parts of the congressional debate.
0: This all just gets back to the purpose and the perspective of what is CIBR for? Because if you think it's for scaling things to the warfighter from non-traditionals or even just that first part, right? Like commercializing and getting new things to scale, you might have a different perspective than if you're just like, no, this is for small businesses. more of a social program or just to make sure that the labs get what they want. Maybe the labs are well served, as you said. But yeah, I would think that if they wanted to get rid of the 842 policy, which seems again, to be like, you're only going to affect the very biggest guys who are getting these all the time, 842 in one year, not over your lifespan. If you do that, then I think that they should have to show At least for those big companies, these are the things that we have helped develop with the labs. And here they are at scale, in production, being used every day. And if they can demonstrate that, then I think you have a harder time on your cell, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's super fair. And where it's a little challenging is a big argument is hey, we're we are helping the labor force, we're we're seeding America defense manufacturing. And if you again you look at The rules will basically say you're you're capped on the number of people that can work at your company to to receive these dollars, and you're only going to receive about so many if you're a mill. And so what happens is these companies go into stasis, and they're only going to have, let's say, 100 to 200 people that work at the company. So you're seeding dollars that aren't growing into thousands of employees. You're not, qual- bring this out as an example. Qualcomm is an, a great example. They took a million or $2 million and their, their market cap. It's tens of billions right now. It's massive, but they only took a small amount of money because they, their objectives were to commercialize outside of it. And so we actually get into a scenario where it's very fair to argue that you're actually hurting the manufacturing in the defense industrial base because they go into an addiction in a stasis mode where they're not commercializing outside of Sivers. And I call out a couple examples where Andrel took on a huge amount of venture capital, but they are several thousand people now where, whether their products are perfect yet, like that's a different thing. But if you look at the startups that are doing a mix of DoD dollars and venture capital that you can do private equity, you can do loans. I don't care. This is not a pitch for for venture capital, those are companies that are very motivated to commercialize and to grow their employee base and to continue to succeed. And I don't know, that's kind of the American way. And and so that sounds a little over the top, but really we should be thinking about, is this really helpful in growing our our labor force and our industrial base in defense? And I'm not, I'm far from convinced that that is the case.
0: Yeah, so it's not about growing, like just sustaining the labor force, making sure People have dollars. It's, are these people working in companies that are providing tremendous value? And we can debate on whether Andurl is or is not providing value. But I think one of the points is Andurl, I think they were hundred million to one hundred and fifty million last year or so. Is what I heard in an article. Let's just take that as true. But their valuation's like eight billion dollars or something like that. Whereas if you look at one of these cyber mill companies, they're getting something comparable in terms of revenue. If a lot of it's coming from Cibber, they don't get those types of valuations, do they? What is the kind of the valuation of GovCon companies or Cibber mill type companies relative to a a Silicon Valley or a private sector? And does that say something about what you're trying to get at, I think?
1: I think there's actually an important point in that um, there was a recent article even with a venture capitalist that's saying, hey, our Cibbers are important to us and we want reauthorization happen." is want to maintain, we don't want to break our relationship with the industrial base. And I get that. I, there's a little bit of irony in that the DOD has effectively put it on pause anyway for about six months by way of their own choice. So we're already putting a little bit of a, a pause on the frequency of the of SBIRs coming out. But there's been more than one, probably less than 10 venture capitalists that's told me. We actually don't like seeing many sivers being won by our companies because it's a false signal it just means that they've gotten good or they've paid people to, to reapply and reapply it's fine to engage to an appoint but if you're going year after year and your main dollars are sivers then that doesn't necessarily show me that you're commercializing in the dod and the companies that i call out that i know that are different Silicon valley companies yes they have won awards and frankly andro really only won a one large siver and that was through an ABMS program. And it was actually just vented to be silver dollars. So that, that was a unique thing that Will Roper did. Many of them, many of the kind of hot Silicon Valley startups that are doing defense tech have taken very little SBIR dollars in part because their main goal is, and they're being pushed to commercialize and get real deal. And so I think the way that I would think about valuing GovTech, it's hit or miss. There's, it's had highs and lows. It has been more attractive. There was more money put in it in 21 than, than in the last several years. But I think defense will be more and more attractive again. But the civil process, it can help seed the start of the conversation. But I don't think companies are going to get massive
0: valuations based on if they were getting $5 million a year in SBIR contracts. I think most VCs can kind of see through that quickly. One of the, the special parts, I guess, about Cibber is if you did the phase two, then you can get a phase three sole source. So that allows you to get a sole source award without going through the competition or have all these business systems or other requirements. I've seen Andurl and certain others, they have been able to receive some significant phase three follow-ons, but those are actually about a billion dollars a year, I think, when I looked at the data. So it's not like, it's not even bigger than the amount of phase twos. So I think at some point the system comes back in on itself and says, okay, we can do some phase three type things like this, but we got to fold you back into the process at some point. But before we get, or maybe we won't even get into the phase three type discussions, I wanted to actually bring us back a little bit because- you said you got a little bit emotional there about actually, what are these dollars for and are they actually going for military strength and for the warfighter? And so you also said in one of your blogs that the tech community itself has a duty and moral role to support the Department of Defense. And there's all, of course, all this consternation about, oh, Google kind of left. Actually, they're now back in on the system, but they left for Project Maven and D kind of looks over at Silicon Valley and is like, oh, those guys don't want to do business with us, but you're saying you you do have a duty and a moral role to play. And so what was your kind of personal journey to come to that conclusion? Have you always been interested in this space since you were a kid or how did you get Yeah, there? yeah. I mean
1: my dad flew F-89s, 102s and 810s and grew up watching them blow up stuff at Volkfield in Wisconsin. My my brother's a wing commander. My the probably the four most important people, male influencers in my life are all military. And so I'm going to be super biased. I think I I get that. In my career, I worked for the Rand Corporation for a long time, mainly with the Air Force. So some people would not view me as objective, and I think that's fair. But I I, I was at a startup and building up the national security arm in 2017 through 2020. And I actually think it was a super interesting time to be engaged with all these different programs. We were fortunate enough. We were Working with IncuTel and in some of the agencies there, we were awarded SBR dollars. We, through advising and or our own contracts, I'd say I at least saw the early, very early inception of ABMS, while I was still at the company when we were starting to engage with other people thinking about what ABMS would be, and was definitely pretty close to some folks at Project Maven. And I think what was intriguing is you had this, I felt like 2018 was like the low point where we really saw pushback from employees at Google, pushback of like, why would anyone want to engage with defense? And it was a little weird for me. I felt like I was taking crazy pills because at the same time, we have some of the brightest engineers in the world that were still pushing out ads and news feeds and didn't necessarily know that they were really helping the world. And so there was this strange time where people weren't proud of trying to support the Department of Defense. And there are many people that I think have progressively pushed to change that. I think I touched on it a little bit. I think that's very different in 22. I think there's a number of reasons why that is. I think one, companies are needing more sources of revenue. And so they're more open to working with the government. I think Ukraine changed the perspective of the tech community a bit in part because there were a lot of engineers at working for a lot of companies in various capacities that that are from Ukraine. I think at least my experience, I knew companies that were immediately trying to find ways for their employees over there or contractors over there to get out. And that was a new experience for a lot of companies that just haven't ever had anything to think about like that. And so I think it's an interesting time where if the DoD really wanted to, we could see hundreds to thousands of new companies that could engage in various aspects of defense. And this frankly could even just be productivity tools at the DoD or in the USG that just help people get their email better. And I think across the board, there's a great opportunity to engage. But yeah, I think in terms of moral duty and responsibility, you can go back to the beginning of Margaret O'Mara. You could look at the history of Silicon Valley and the relationship there. You can look at, you could read a Kristen Bowe's Kill Chain to think about the motivation of future competition with China. At the end of the day, I guess, personally, it was just like always what you should do because that's the family I grew up in. And I don't know, I think it's a little weird seeing dji drones being used in ukraine to help deliver precise munitions and is that we can't produce an american cheap competitive drone like that yeah i don't know we can't off the shelf right now and i think we're going to see that across the board i just think we're going to continue to compete with china and until we can field really interesting commercial technologies in certain areas that get dod backing and dod support we can fall behind in some key
0: areas in your mind one of the things that i suspected about some of those tech companies When they started rebuking some of the Department of Defense, in my mind, it was like, maybe there's a handful of people who actually felt that way. But if you're the leadership, it might be just easiest to go along with that because it might not be worth it to do business with the Department of Defense. If DOD, let's just say companies were getting trans dime type profits and everyone knew about it, like you get a thousand percent profit on this. I'm sure those companies would have been flooding into the space, but it is the government sector like you're just not going to get the types of margins even if you're sinking venture private funded stuff into it you're probably just not going to get the same type of margin structure as you might as like a SaaS company so what's your kind of view there potentially do you think that the structure of profitability and contracting needs to look more like the commercial sector or do you think they're somewhere in the middle from where we are today, where the companies it's their duty to support the government, so they don't need the exact same types of profitability in terms of actual sales, like margins. But they, but the government could come along a little bit. What's your view on that?
1: Yeah, I think the not to go super deep into political philosophies, but I think companies are pretty quick to step up and in my opinion, rightfully support certain types of marginalized groups in certain scenarios and say, hey, we stand behind this. But if they're not going to stand behind the government because it's not profitable, that's BS to me. <laughs> so I don't like, I, I'm also not a leader of an extremely large company, whatever, take that for a grain, of, a grain of salt. So yeah, I don't necessarily like that. But I think, look, actually, you're bringing up the more interesting questions that i been disappointed that the DoD and that Congress haven't been thinking about or actively engaging as part of this overall reform process. And that's really around, okay, why is it not profitable and why are certain companies not wanting to engage? Like I highlight in one of my articles about how the great majority of companies that get backed by Incutel and/or DIU haven't actually engaged with SBIR. And then you can maybe say this more broadly about engaging with the government but they're not doing it in part because it's not really economically feasible or makes sense at all. And, and that could just be, it could be the dollars awarded, but it also could just be about aspects of the process. How do we think about time from inception creative idea to, to a meaningful contract and all the roadblocks that sit between? So let me give you one example. There's a company, I'm not affiliated with them. I know some of the guys there. Second Front Systems, this idea of Game Warden, All right. So whether it's good or bad, and I'm not... Do
0: you want to describe
1: that? Okay, so they're going to destroy me for describing it wrong. But one way I like to look at it is this is actually your app store play to, to get in onto DoD networks, where all you really have to be able to do is push your bits over and they are going to be scanned and maintained by professionals in the Second Front community, and you don't have to worry about that. There's and that costs money and whatever. But look, as a company, I've gone through some of the process to get facility clearances, to get cleared personnel, to get all of your kind of accreditations, your ATOs along the way. That is so much time and energy that spend a hundred million dollars and not necessarily on Second Front, but on companies like that that are going to reduce barriers for companies to engage and plug in their bits into the system. And that's like an oversimplification, but it actually, I really think that's the type of stuff that we should be thinking about, whether it's them. Palantir has like the Apollo platform that kind of helps with parts of the DevOps process to get you FedRAMP compliant. Like Those are things that are, to me, where we really should be engaging and talking about how do we unlock this process quicker. That The other things I do mention is like, if you look at the actual cyber application process, I always pick on the cost volume sheets. Like no one knows what that means. No one knows how to. No one knows how to fill that out properly, or where you're going to fall out of bounds. And so I think pre-populate what's government accepted, and then allow companies to augment and say, okay, no, actually I fall out of bounds here. But if you don't know, don't penalize people for not speaking the same government talk and doing the same types of overhead. So I think like little things can be done like that. I think big things are areas that would be really exciting to say, all right, Sibber, there's actually going to be, if you get this award, there'll be a hundred thousand dollar credit that will already plug you in so people can start using this thing right away. That would be super intriguing to see innovation in that space. And that I think would excite the coming full circle. That was a very long answer. That would excite the people to think more about the economics of the opportunity in a more positive light.
0: Yeah. So, one, one aspect of this, I think the former part was uh, like having Twilio, right? Like I don't need to build an SMS like app so I can do that. I just plug in Twilio. Can I have that same kind of thinking, uh, which already exists, right? Like AWS, a lot of the Fed ramp stuff for new contractors. If you adopt AWS, you're adopting a lot of those security controls already. Can we just take that thinking? And massively expand it to make that just reduce the barriers to entry through that. And it's not necessarily like a lot of this bureaucratic type stuff necessarily. It's actually what are the incentives to derive these types of capabilities that can be used. Or program it
1: in. Yeah. Just spend thirty the thirty million dollars of killing phase one and or parts of phase one and just be like, hey, look, everyone that wins a phase two that reaches this milestone is gonna get the AWS credits to be FedRAMP compliant. It's you know, just like to me start the process of evaluating companies assuming that they're going to be successful especially for SBIRs that are more transitionary in nature because when people talk about the part of the people talk about the valley of death part of the problem is the clock doesn't often start until you've completed like the phase two and then people you have to go out and find sponsors for facility clearance you got to hire people like in some respects that we should be thinking about compressing that amount of time. So once you're maybe even in the funnel, you've put in an application phase one, there's some degree of vetting that's going on in the background. There's distributed databases across parts of the DoD. So everyone's got really clean views. This stuff already exists. I just don't know. I mean, I think if we're really going to, if we believe SBR is a way to help fund companies to participate and and unlock new technologies into the DoD, the most intriguing bits that are still falling by the wayside are how do we trim down that time from application to a fully functional application for the DoD users. And that's the stuff that would be really intriguing to see improved in the future.
0: So as we wrap up here, you've obviously started your own company recently that's in the artificial intelligence space. Just want to give us like what's that company about and what are you trying to do with it?
1: Yeah. So I think there's been a generation of artificial intelligence applications and models that have been built in a process of Labeling lots of data and tuning models and monitoring them and putting them into production. And more recently, you've seen some really large architectures being, transformer architectures being rolled out. GPT-3 before is going to come out soon, you see Dolly people making images of pandas playing poker. What these models represent, I think is the next generation of how people will engage with AI. But there's some real challenges in that. And that for the most part, they're locked up by only a handful of players and they're so big. That although they can answer questions and be trained really efficiently, they take tons of GPUs or TPUs and they're not that performant for certain flows. What we're focusing on is what we believe will be really important, both to the broader commercial sector and also the DoD, is how do you take advantage of these really large transformer architectures and make them extremely useful and available for organizations with their actual workflow? We'll leave it that vague, but that's where we're going right now.
0: All right, cool. How can our audience find your work or reach you?
1: It's on Substack. You can just look up my name on Substack. It's there. I think people want to reach out and ask questions. Usually available on LinkedIn. And yeah, I'll try to get back and answer or Twitter. Any questions or hate mail, I'm happy to receive both.
0: Ben Van Roo, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. All right, thanks a lot, Eric. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at AcquisitionTalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.